0: Hello, and a very warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. And this particular episode is being hosted as part of our Ubuntu Mental Health Matters series. So a personal project of mine, a big, big passion, and I'm more than happy to be joined by three wonderful mental health advocates uh, from Nigeria, the UK, and Kenya. This being Timothy Asobele-Emmanuel Dare of the Anti-Suicide and Depression Squad based in Nigeria, Liz Giles from the Ministry of Justice in the UK, and Lynette Etemessi of the Stability Network of Kenya. And a, a very warm welcome back to the podcast for Lynette. Always a pleasure to have you with us. Now, we're here today uh, to discuss something which kind of popped up in my my conversations with uh practitioners on the continent as as I you know have every single day and it was the idea of mental health first aid now In the UK, we've been seeing this uh, job title or additional qualification crop up now and again, and it's starting to appear in law firms. So I asked some of my good friends, including Lynette and Timothy, have you seen this job title or this qualification appear in any of the African law firms in which you engage with? And the answer with a resounding no. Now, this isn't in, it, in and of itself a shocking or a bad thing, but it did get me thinking perhaps we need to educate as to what this idea of mental health first aid actually is. What is the role of a mental health first aider? How can it be a useful addition to an organisation's attempts and policies around promoting mental health and well-being in the workplace, whether that's a corporation, a law firm, or even a government department. So I couldn't be happier to be joined by some real experts when it comes to this. And I think enough from me, let's dive right into it. Lynette, I wanted to start with you, but I'm gonna put this to the other panelists as well. In a few sentences, let's set the scene here. Why are you so passionate about mental health and wellbeing?
1: Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Tom, for the question. Um, So I'm really passionate about it because um, coming from a legal field, Um, I experienced it firsthand and based on um, the kind of workplace that I was in, especially the fact that it was fast-paced and um, there was a lot of work coming in, um, there was a lot of pressure, there was a lot of... um, pressure to deliver. So I figured that I fell into that pit of being depressed and getting highly anxious. And in that environment, I actually sought to figure out if there's any person who could help or if I could get any help from where I was coming from, but there was barely any help. So um, I decided since people are not really in where I come from in Kenya, since it's not really a well vast or talked about issue, especially mental health. And we especially with lawyers, then I decided instead of, you know, just explaining or talking about the fact that I'm feeling depressed or I'm anxious, what can I do about it? So I took it upon myself to actually educate and try and help people within the profession to be able to, you know, get to the level where they're able to check their mental health, whether it's at optimum level, and just educate people around me on issues around mental health and how to take care of their mental health. Thank you, Tom.
0: Thanks, Lynn. I think it's always a great, great you know to hear of someone who's experienced something firsthand. And instead of just trying to overcome and solve these problems for themselves, they were pretty quickly able to pivot and look at what their personal experiences and uh, and realizations could do for other people. Now, moving to Timothy here, I, you you help head up a uh, a very robustly named organization, which is the Anti Suicide and Depression Squad. Uh, based in Nigeria. Now, I love the title because I'm quite a direct person. Um, so, w- without being too obvious, uh, firstly, what is it that the Anti Suicide uh, uh, and Depression Squad do? And also, how does that intertwine with your personal passions when it comes to mental health and well being?
2: All right. Thank you so much, um, Tom. Thank you so much. All right. So, um, Anti Suicide and Depression Squad, um, short name called Assads. Um, deals with, I mean, just like the name says, depression and suicide, right? So um, we try to educate people. So we have like a WhatsApp forum where we have um, over 1,000 participants. So we educate people to get acquainted with mental health terms so that they could help themselves and they also can also be able to help other people, right? I know we're going to talk about it later on in the conversation, but there's still... A lot of stigmatization when it comes to mental health right so a lot of people still cannot relate to the topic so our goal is to try and help them now aside from that we also have a lot of virtual um activities when it comes to anti-suicide and depression squad so every first saturday of the month from 2 p.m west african time to 4 p.m west african time we have a free mental health training on zoom And then um, while in Nigeria for physical um, presence, every last Saturday of the month, we have a physical support group session where everyone signs a non-disclosure agreement. They can express themselves and whatever they say is confidential. They won't hear about it in any other place. Now, aside from that, we also have um, what we call the Assad store. We realize that millions of people are still not online. And so we go to different communities, religious institutions to talk about mental health here in Lagos, um, Nigeria. And then from time to time, we have virtual conferences to invite so many speakers all over the world to join and also be able to give their own um, contribution. So the idea is that with um, Assad, we're able to reach more people. Now, Assad, aside um, from that, we also have what we call the Assad listeners. So they are literally mentored first eaters, right? And so in Nigeria, we're 250 million, and we barely have up to 1,000 professional therapists right? So even if we had 1,000 professional therapists, it means one person has to listen to about 250,000 people. So there's already a problem, there's a gap. And so the goal is that why can't we see how we can train 3,000 people every six months or every year, and let's see how we can bridge that gap in, say, five years, so that we can have more mental first aiders that can listen to people and help people. And so that's just what we want to do. Um, So while for me personally, why I find myself in this space, um, similar to Lane's story, and 2017, I was depressed, right? And so it was a very dark period for me and I was able to come out of it. And I knew that I didn't want anybody to feel that way, right? So when it comes to depression, it's just like you're in this dark space, you're not excited, you don't want to do things, you're not creative, you don't even want to push. And so immediately I was like, you know what? I want to do something for people. And you know, in doing that, I didn't think it was going to grow like this or get to the stage whereby we've had Um, lots of physical support groups and help so many people and we keep doing this. So it's just been an amazing um, journey to be able to like come from that personal experience to be able to help people and also go for trainings as well to learn more about um, the problem. So that's just been about it for me um, in the mental space, basically.
0: Timothy, I think think that's... Awesome to hear. I had no idea about that—that that, you know, uh, therapist and the the quarter of a million individuals that each Nigerian th- therapist would have to look after. And I think, you know, it's indicative of the the kind of funnel, the pyramid that's needed in these things. You know, it's understanding that mental well being is triage is probably the wrong word, but it's more about understanding that you can catch this at many different levels. It isn't something that needs to wait until crisis point to be addressed. You know, just having someone who can listen to you, uh, knowing that this is a topic that is destigmatized, um, knowing that there are support groups and networks and so on. All of this can be done. It doesn't need an, an additional million therapists suddenly to to qualify into the market. But it it's, it's there to catch people on the way. I, I heard a great expression uh, uh, with regard to mental well-being uh, a few months ago, which was a safety net doesn't work if it's lying on the ground. Um, and <laughs> for me, that was really, really, really resonated because it's the idea that we have to try and catch people before they're falling before they've even you know tripped and it's things like this listening program those destigmatization efforts that you're talking about that will do just that so Liz last but by no means least uh some of your personal thoughts on where has your passion for for mental health and well-being really sprung from do you think
3: I would say it first started when I used to be a journalist. I worked in a very fast paced um, broadcast newsroom, also in radio. And I think there was a level of, well, you know, you just need to get on with the job. But actually behind the scenes, I'd see so many people um, just taking time off, um, not really being themselves. But actually, it just, it felt like it just nobody was really there to address it or to support those people. And and whilst, you know, you can have conversations with colleagues um, and sort of try and reassure them to, to support them, that they, they didn't feel like a very um, visual framework to deal and to, to support people that were going through um, very difficult working um, conditions. Um, a lot of people, you know, having worked as a journalist for over 10 years before moving to the civil service, some of the different stories that you work on are very traumatic. And, and I think when I came into work in the civil service, I, I started to think about, well, how, how will this, you know, particularly as a, a new mum. And I, like Lynette and Timothy, had my own experience of going through that sort of depression whereby I didn't feel I could work effectively and be a good mother to my children. Um, I felt like I was being pulled in both directions I wanted to do well in my career but yet you can't be in both places at the same time and, and as I kind of went along I felt more and more passionate about a trying to help other people but b making it more acceptable to speak about because working in a press office for example. um, This was something that I sort of put on myself. I felt that if I started to say, look, you know, I can't do this or I'm finding it too much to juggle this and being a parent, it would be seen as a weakness. And I really didn't want people to start perceiving me in that way. So I I probably kept it sort of to myself, to my family for quite a long time. And I think what then happened when we went through COVID, the pandemic, everything was so much more heightened. Everything was much more, you know, put things in perspective. A lot of people went through some difficult times, whether you're, you know, on top of each other as part of a family or you're living in shared accommodation, but still trying to work and still trying to keep up a level of sort of presence in your workplace, but also not knowing what's happening, how long are we going to be in this situation? Um, And it could be quite stifling. So, That's what led me really to become a mental health first aider. And it's something... The Ministry of Justice is very passionate about, and one of my sort of key missions, if you like, is to sort of get more and more people trained up. We've got about three or four in my sort of sort of immediate team, let's say, but I know there are many more across the department, and we have regular um, updates. Um, you know, as a new starter, for example, you can um, join in on sessions during the month. You can drop in to um, have a sort of informal chat with with one of us in the team. So. I've I really do see the power of, of it, although we're by no means experts. I think we act as a sort of signposting tool um, and, and also sometimes people just want to download. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from um, at the Ministry of Justice.
0: So no, nothing like the two Ps, parenting and pandemic, to bring uh, mental health issues to the to the point as as it were definitely <laughs> and I, I look i'm interested we've mentioned mental health first aid you know we've started talking about it i alluded to it in my opening remarks i mean look let's get back to basics here what is mental health first aid as you understand it and what what are the key benefits you feel it brings you your colleagues and the wider organisation in being a mental health first aider yourself, Liz?
3: So the Mental Health First Aid programme, I believe, was sort of started um, by a team in Australia um, back in 2000. And I think it's kind of floated, um, the whole kind of concept has has kind of been floated in in many countries around the world and it's something that's been replicated. My understanding of it is is being sort of receptive um, and understanding of people that, might be in a certain situation that they just don't want to go to the I guess when we were saying earlier you know having to go to therapy like who do you choose and I think this is something I thought about when I was in that place well how do I find somebody Uh, you know you talk to your family you know it's you kind of want a neutral party and I think by myself going through the course understanding something not everything of course around lots of different topics um you know, we talk about sort of suicide, we talk about depression, anxiety, um, and and all of those areas still have such a big stigma. Um, But I think the fact that we're talking about it more in the department is is so beneficial. Um, And it's something that I think, the whole program has started to sort of gain much more traction. Um, certainly, many more people have signed up to it over over the time that I've been a mental health first aider, which is around sort of eighteen months now. Um, and I can see the value. I I think it's just about having somebody that you can have outside your team. You know, they're not going to judge you. Um, it can be really informal. Sometimes it is just very casual. You, you might not get into any sort of depth of conversation but it's just about having someone there and, you know, it's a safe space and sometimes teams don't always advocate having that or have a space where people can speak freely. Um, and quite often it is, yeah, just a phone call or just a coffee, really simple things.
0: It's kind of, I think it's, it's one of the most visual um, examples of a wider mental health and well-being policy. I think all organizations, you know, gathering dust somewhere in a lot of cases have a employee well-being program. But a lot of it is text on paper. You know, we can provide and we can provide this and we will provide that. Whereas if you have pictures of friendly faces, uh, you know, with names and, and these are real people with that mental health first aid badge, for me, it kind of humanizes and actualizes what can feel quite a um uh, unobtainable or unengageable framework and policy in in a work environment D- does does that kind of concept resonate with you
3: i I think that's true to some extent i think it's it's very difficult sometimes for organizations to kind of practice what they preach um but I, I would say that COVID has accelerated I think our sort of talking and speaking about this whole um, whole piece around mental health well being um, and you know th- you know working in a very politically charged environment coupled with the COVID situation and I I know particularly there was a peak in people coming and talking to me um, when George Floyd um, was murdered in America how are we how are we gonna kind of manage this and you you can't just go, well, you know that there's a couple of things you can read online You've got to kind of take the whole team with you and I think you know we did a few sessions whereby we didn't particularly want to kind of label it as such, but I think it was more of a you know just come along informal chat um we know and I think it's just people knowing that you care, and that sounds kind of obvious, I suppose. But I definitely felt within our sort of our team at, at the MOJ that people were very mindful of like, look, you're working too much or I can tell or, you know, go off, take some time out, you know, or tell me when you're getting to that point. I don't want you to pass that line. I want you to sort of anticipate that, you know, if you're feeling that you're overwhelmed and trying to sort of building those coping strategies, um, you know, whether it's, You know, we talk about mindfulness and I think it's just being there as a kind of um, sounding board, bounce around ideas, what things really matter to people and sort of trying to move them away from, you know, feeling like there's nothing really good that's going on at the moment. You're stuck inside. You can't go out um, and you've still got work to do. You've still got life goes on. So I, I think definitely within our department, we have kind of raised our profile in this area.
0: It's good to hear. And I, I think, you know, we can't underestimate how important that intertwining of of someone that will listen with with the working environment, particularly during COVID and lockdowns. You know, we weren't seeing the friends and the familiar faces that we would usually be able to talk with in a very casual way. You know, it didn't mean we had to schedule a Zoom to chat with one of our friends. You know, usually you'd just see them at the pub on a Saturday, if you watch the football, for example. And instead, most human contact that we ended up having, you know, our darling families to one side was with colleagues. So I think it, it's, it's great timing to see that the benefit of of mental health first aid was able to really step forward during the very strange uh, pandemic times. Now, I'm going to pivot over to Lynette now. Our uh, we're going broader. We were just talking about bilateral kind of one-to-one sounding boards. We're going to the the governmental policy and legislative level now. Now, I know that you have been heavily involved with lobbying on on specific pieces of legislation in in Kenya, uh, predominantly around the decriminalization of of suicide. So I know that you're very equipped to answer questions that, that align with policy and legislation. I mean, look, with regard to African policy, if it even exists, and legislation which impacts mental health, are we starting to see... Genuinely and 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 positive changes to how this legislation affects the lives of Africans as of yet. You know, are there some standout examples of new legislation or policy having positive impacts? And 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 further, final part of the question: In your experience, what are some of the legislative or policy skeletons in the closet? still manifesting negative mental health and, and mental well-being implications in a number of African countries. So a bit of a one, two, three there, uh, uh, Lynette. What is African policy and legislation doing when it comes to individual mental health, positive or, or, or negative? What are some examples of that? And and what are some of the negative examples, skeletons in the closet, as it were?
1: Um thank you so much tom um that's a very interesting question and i'm so glad that you brought it up so in terms of um the strides that we are actually taking in terms of policy um, of course i'll just start with home right here um kenya so in kenya we are um one thing that i really tell people is that we are so big on over legislating and drafting laws but When it comes to implementation, there's a really huge gap. Like this is a country where if you need to find any law regarding anything, then you'll be able to find it anytime, anywhere, because we are always legislating. Parliament is working overtime and they're always legislating, which brings me to the point where we've really made some strides when it comes to mental health, because when we start with our constitution, it talks about um, there's a right to the highest level of healthcare, and that includes um, mental health. So based on that, we proceeded and we ended up coming up with a mental health policy 2015 to 2030. Tom, it is such a beautiful policy, but to date, the policy was drafted and commissioned in 2015, and it had all sorts of good things in there, like alternative service providers, because here... Um, in Kenya or rather in African society, we tend to believe that a psychiatrist or a psychologist is not our first point of contact when it comes to issues in, around mental health. People believe in their religious leaders, people believe in their traditional healers, people believe in various people. So the mental health policy embraced that, brought that up, brought in the whole issue of multisectoral approaches when it comes to mental health, meaning it's not just, um, the medical aspect that is looked into but it should be looked into like or rather there should be a holistic approach around that so we have this beautiful policy that was launched and you know with all colors and fireworks but a few years down the line seven years down the line it has not been implemented but within that same period we had the mental health amendment bill which we've actually been lobbying for it to be passed since 2018 which Brings in really beautiful aspects because we have something called the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is an international convention, and it also brings out the issues of how to take care of persons with mental health um, uh, disabilities or how to deal with people who have mental health issues, and we see all that really incorporated in the Mental Health uh, Amendment Bill 2018. And I'm just proud to say that we are actually about to have that uh, assented, and it's about to become law. So uh, our making noise and and, and lobbying has really helped. Um, And then uh, when it comes to decriminalization of suicide, um, in our country, um, suicide is an offense. And what usually happens is that when you look at the Penal Code, so the Penal Code is the law that uh, deals with criminal offenses. So when you look at the Penal Code, they say that if somebody is found attempting suicide, then they're liable for a prison um, imprisonment for about three years. And we're looking at it and we're like, suicide is not supposed to be a crime. Suicide is a cry for help. So you can't necessarily charge somebody of attempted suicide and take them to prison instead of asking or rather helping them out so before we actually proceeded to have that as a section to be um deleted from the penal code we decided to file a petition in court where we brought all the persons with lived experience or mental health issues who have had suicide ideations come to court um we were working together with the national commission of human rights and we come together and tell them listen This is what happens when somebody contemplates suicide. You need to understand it's not from a criminal perspective, but it is based on whatever it is that is happening around this person, and they don't have the mental strength to be able to deal with it. So they contemplate it. And the other aspect we were also telling them is that, listen, the police cannot be the first point of contact when it comes to somebody attempting suicide because they have no experience whatsoever. And I'm so glad because when Liz was talking about the mental health first aiders. I believe that is seriously where they can actually come in. Because when somebody is contemplating on taking their life, you need somebody to come and talk to them. Somebody they who humanizes the whole situation, somebody they can relate to to have that conversation. So based on that, we are building other things which comes to the suicide prevention um, strategy. So other than that, I'm seeing a lot of um, African countries. I also have been seeing Nigeria have really been pushing for uh, proper mental health um bill because their current bill is quite outdated so those are some of the few jurisdictions that I'm seeing also I'm seeing that there are discussions around Parliament in Tanzania on just how we can be able to you know they can be able to come up with proper mental health um legislation so um that is more or less the first part of the question um unless maybe there is something maybe you may like to Added. No, uh, Timothy.
0: Anything to add on the Nigerian component that was was referenced there?
2: Yes. Um, so when it comes to the bill, right? So only mm-hmm. Lagos State is sort of trying something. Okay. Just um, yes, you're right, Lynn, Um Our mental health law is sort of outdated. Even the constitution. Um, when you read the Nigerian constitution, you realize that it's sort of um, against people that have any sort of mental health um, issues. You know, it's very clear. It's very clean. And so those are some of the things that we need to be able to reform in terms of that aspect. Right. So um I think policies are very important because they shape even the economy and so much more. Because if whatever it is that we're doing in Nigeria trying to push for mental health advocacy and all of those things, if if policies came out that didn't support what we're doing, it wouldn't make sense you know for me i believe that um well you when you have a government that supports what you do and makes it normal you know so we are fighting for a lot um because when you talk about mental health in nigeria um it's only uh, mentioned in like lagos portakot abuja um basically and we have 36 states uh, and and you know it's very important that you can talk about most of these things in all of these states so i think it's very important that um senators governors presidents can um champion these realities nobody um you know prays for these situations you know different circumstances and factors cause all of these things so i just wanted to just add that i think it's something that um we need to seriously champion policies mental policies not just in nigeria um but in africa as well and see how we can get support because um At the end of the day, policies are what will shape everything, laws, you know, laws being put in place to ensure that um, all of these things are acknowledged and um, everyone can have a normal life, you know, and just, you know, have access to mental health um, infrastructures and all of those things. But we currently don't have that in Nigeria. Um, Not everyone can afford therapy. So many, so many issues as well. So I just wanted to just add there that, yeah, um, no one has um, approved the bill. The bill is there. We're currently trying to see how we can push it so that um it can be passed into law hopefully fingers crossed um this can be done before the next election um next year so yeah
0: thanks timothy and lim i i feel like you were you'd already done a really great job pretty much on battling with the the three um issues that are raised you know around the direct impact of legislation the good the bad and the ugly um really really fascinating answer. I. I want to dive back into it though I want to use Kenya as an example here. you know what's fascinating for me here is this dichotomy okay you've got like you described, a beautifully worded bill or two uh you know with with uh, provision for alternative support structures and 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 funding and and all of that good stuff, and yet the criminalization of attempted suicide stays on the books here. Is this an example of tokenism at its at its worst? You know, how could a government sit there and write lofty, idealized, you know, idealized legislation and policy whilst knowing that one of the greatest examples of the need for help is currently being criminalized? I mean, it it, it sounds like someone pointing to the moon saying, oh, we're going to fly there. And you say, in what? And they've drawn a picture of a rocket with crayons. You know what what actually needs to happen here for these lofty ideals to become reality? Um a tough question, but any thoughts?
1: Well, I I think the what you're saying is very true because um if you look at it, there's a lot of controversy because there's this policy that is talking about um you know all these beautiful approaches when it comes to dealing with um, mental health and issues around suicide and then we have this particular law which is one of the most it's actually if you're referring to any laws that when it comes to criminal law then you're referring to the penal code that's the first law that everybody will go and look up but i think i i really blame this on the fact um, that there's a bit of a discrepancy in terms of some of the laws that we are still using to operate are quite um, overtaken by time and events and um, we have this new crop of legislation legislators who are very open-minded and they're seeing what's happening in society and they're trying to bring that into how we work and how we do things. So you'll find um, a lot of our statute because was heavily borrowed from other countries and sometimes you just put it there, but you have no implication whatsoever. And I'll give an example in terms of how this controversy is there and how we have this two sides where there's this law, upcoming crop of legislators that have written beautiful laws, and then you have are still implementing some of these old laws. So the Kenyan constitution says that any convention that we ratify or we sign becomes a part of Kenyan law. Then we have one of those conventions that was signed and became part of Kenyan law is the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which comes up and says, you need to give people legal capacity to make their decisions. If they can't make their decisions with their mental health state, they need to have supported uh, people who can help them uh, make right decisions or who can show them or rather support them. Then you have, um, you should not use derogatory terms to refer somebody with a mental health condition. Like you should not call them insane or you should not call them a lunatic. Then there's this other one that is talking about this. But I mean, this other... um, uh, rather this um so and then we also have this other bill that is talking about decriminalization of suicide so those are all these beautiful laws that have all an up and coming that we have actually ratified or agreed to follow but then we can't do that without repealing or getting rid of this old ones that kind of contradict this new ones because you have All the laws in Kenya tend to refer persons with mental health issues using derogatory terms. You'll find insane, a person of unsound mind, lunatic, you'll have all those terms but you have this other side of laws which have been impl- which are being yet to be implemented and or rather they've been ratified and you need to start using them but these other terms are still heavily in use so that's where the contradiction comes in tom because people are like yes we have this but this other guys say this so which side do we um, incline ourselves to do we go to this way or do we go to this other new ratified law so i feel like that is a dilemma that we are constantly dealing with
0: um, and Lynn, in a, in a single word, if you can, if is this a matter of political will to fix this? If there was enough political will, would there be sweeping changes possible to remove all that derogatory language, update penal codes? Is it simply a matter of will or is it more complicated than that?
1: I think it is just a matter of political will and also there's also the aspect of um, the society in general to actually accept some of these changes because um, we are living in, I mean, Africa, we have very different cultures. People have different perceptions of everything. In my, um, in my tribe, um, people refer persons with, if you have if you're depressed or you have a mental health condition, my goodness, the terms that they use to refer them are horrible in my own community community. So, other than political will, we also have to come down to the community level and just start desensitizing and helping them unlearn some of the things that they've been brought up knowing. Even our national language, we have two national languages we have English and we have Swahili. And for if for, when it comes to Swahili and they are meant to refer somebody who has a mental health issue, you call them, um, I'll I'll just say it, it's called Mwendawazimu, which simply means a madman. And that is your national language, and that is something that is acceptable by everybody. And if somebody says that person is a mwendawazimu, you already have that depicted, or rather that picture in your mind comes to you, like, oh wow. Um, Clearly, this person has a mental health issue. So I feel like other than political will, it also comes down to the will of people to actually accept that this is not something that is alien. This is something that happens. And they need to start unlearning what exactly they know and just start accepting that this are people like any other people, but they just need a certain level of help. So, yeah.
0: Lynette, I couldn't agree more, and I think you know it really does highlight how complicated and multifaceted an issue this is. But let's let's focus on that destigmatization play, Uh, uh, Timothy. Let's talk about you know destigmatization and structures. Now, in your experience as the founder of the Anti Suicide and Depression Squad, is the African legal community especially prone to unacknowledged or or unsupported? Bouts of mental illness and poor well being? And, you know, if so, what are the structures and attitudes perpetuating this? W- what does the legal community need to fundamentally address and accept if we are going to make changes for the better?
2: Thank you so much um, for asking this question. Um, so, um, I know, okay. Um, So as lawyers, we all know that uh, when it comes to law right, the only time we sort of mention mental health might be like a form of self-defense, right? Someone trying to claim, um, you know, insanity and all of those things. So um, those are the only times that people sort of consider mental health when it comes to the legal situation in Nigeria, right? But um, certain realities have been happening that people have started having conversations. Um, last year, I was invited by the Nigerian Bar Association um, to come talk about mental health at um, uh, one of the colloquiums that they had. And so I was able to talk about mental health, right? And I know that one of the signs reached out to me wanting to work on something, but to date, um, we've not been able to work on something yet. Uh, So when it comes to destigmatization in the legal community, it's it's going to require such as the Nigerian Bar Association as well as because um, that's the head or in, in terms of being able to make changes to realize that okay mental issues are legit and it doesn't necessarily mean um, someone is mad right so what that means is that in Nigeria right most times I don't know if it's an African thing right once, once people hear mental health they just think crazy they think someone um, tearing their clothes and all of those things but that's not the truth so For you to be able to destigmatize beliefs about mental health, you have to educate people. And I'm I'm hoping, I'm happy that we're having this podcast because this is what this is going to do. And so everyone needs to understand that there is mental health just like there's physical health. And so mental health is different from mental illness. It's just the way you can um, you could have a day or your body could be paining you. That's physical health, right? So with mental health, we all have mental health. How are we doing mentally, emotionally? You know, if you're not okay mentally and emotional, you might not be able to get things done, right? But another issue is that a lot of times some people have abused the system whereby people have started using mental health as an excuse to be lazy. And so there's some conflict because people are not sure as to when this is a serious issue or if someone is joking about all of those things. So um, the most important thing to do is just to, so at right. what we're trying to do is to create a buffet of mental health solutions, right? There are other mental organizations that are trying to do things. um, But for us to finally have that right structure that could cause change, it's about creating structures whereby you're not forcing people to um, come. So, for example, I told you some of the things we do in Assad's, right? Some people are comfortable in the WhatsApp forum. They read the content. They're cool. Some people see it on social media. They're cool. Some people listen to podcasts, just like many other people that are going to listen to this podcast. They're okay with it. Um, Why some people come for the physical um, event as well. So, another thing we do in Assad's is called the Mental Health Speaks event. It's an annual event that we do where we gather people to come and learn more about mental health and so much more. So, it's like, can we see how the legal community in Africa or in Nigeria, partner together to have like a global African mental health conference. It could be for lawyers. We could start there, right? And see how we can have this annually. It could even be virtual. Maybe um, this is something that the African legal community can start where we get all the stakeholders um, in the various top legal um, bodies in our respective African countries um, to come. Let's talk about these things, right? Because no matter how we talk, strategy is good, don't get me wrong, but action is the thing. Um, Maybe this conversation is what will start the chain in terms of causing a change. So it's like, oh, I listened to this podcast. I think what it said made sense. I think I agree with some of them. Okay, what do we want to do about it? What's the timeline we want to give ourselves? Do we want to give ourselves five years? Do we want to give ourselves six years and all of those things? I don't know if all of us are aware of this. I'm sure we are all aware. Every 40 seconds, someone takes their life. We've been talking for many minutes right now. Imagine people have you know, taking their lives. Just imagine. And so it's like, and the statistics also shows 800,000 people commit suicide every year. And I just even got a message this morning that someone went to buy a sniper um, and, you know, she took her life, right? And so it's like, how do we create the structures and the equipment, you know, the safety nets that can help people? So it's a situation of, okay, you know what? Uh, Maybe you are broke, you don't have a job or you are struggling, whatever it is that you are struggling with. Is there a platform? Is there an institution that you can go to that can help you? You know, I believe that when you know better, you do better. But if we don't even have um these institutions, these um structures in place, and people that understand the structures, because that's another thing about structures. Structures are good, but if you don't have people understand the structures, it's very, very important. So, first things first, what do people even think about mental health? What do they think about mental health? What do they understand about mental health? A lot of people in my country believe that mental health is a spiritual problem. You know, there are people like that that still think it's a spiritual problem. People think that it's it's an excuse for people to be lazy and all of those things. So um, my challenge to the legal community in Africa and even in Nigeria is, can we have like a panel discussion, Um, listen to the stakeholders, let's see how we can come up with structures. A lot of people complain in Nigeria um about law firms. Some law firms are toxic, lawyers are not being paid well. Um, how do you expect people to be able to survive in the economy? You know, you're adding to their mental health issues. Imagine I spend most of my time in the office from eight to five, I'm in the traffic, coming back home. So people are um passing their aggression to their family members, which is affecting the children, you know, and when you realize that some of the mental health issues that happen with um with males and females, um maybe the parent is not at home, um, the mother was not at home, and so people start finding um, that comfort. And so it's, it's a, whole, a whole lot of spectrums that cause all of these things. You know. So what I would say is that there's a popular series called Billions, I don't know if you watch it, where there's like a psychologist in the office and she's helping people to become better. I think it's something we could start with. Can we create another job description for a mental health first aider or professional in law firms? Is this something we can do? Is this something we can create? Can we partner with labor laws of each country whereby um, mental health is now reflecting in these laws to consider all of these things, insurances and all of those things, where there's a mental health person in each law firm that people can go to to talk about the fact that, oh, this case is draining, I need some time and all of those things. Because there's so much pressure. You know, Everyone is trying to hustle and do so many things. But what I'm saying is that my fear is that we might just keep talking because some people don't see the need in us doing it. But I believe that if we can put these structures in place and come up with a system, push for um, mental health policies, I mean, it's just like once, once someone can do it, when you look at other issues aside from mental health that have been passed into the law, a group of people started the movement. It took time. It will take time. I'm not saying it's something that can be done within the next six months. But I believe that this conversation is going to start a chain of reaction in different African countries. I'm, I'm so sure of it, that this conversation is going to start making people think differently and think about innovative ways to solve the problem. How can we solve this problem? How can we make people feel comfortable talking? Even, even when it comes to confidentiality, that's another thing about mental health. Do I feel safe when I come and meet you, when I use your structure? Or will this information be used against me later on? You know. So those are some of the things we need to think about, um, basically. So and would you- Timothy,
0: I think, you know, a lot of what you've talked about there, I think there's still the overriding hurdle that's facing, um, you know, African jurisdictions and particularly the legal uh, community across Africa is destigmatization. You know, we could fit, we could put mental health first aid training, um, which I think, we, you know, we should start, you know, we can talk about structures and programs and initiatives and policies but it sounds like the big wall that's in front of us that we need to topple. If any of those are going to have real impact, or at least you know, if, if speedy impact is destigmatization, uh, you know, people just talking about this more, being aware of it, sharing experiences, and so on. So, you know, uh, something to call out on this very podcast is if if you are. A member of our community who is struggling or has something to say anonymously, however it needs to be said, J- just reach out to us, reach out to me at thomas at africapsg.com. Find, you know, Timothy or, 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 Lynn or, or Liz on, on, uh, uh, LinkedIn, you know, let's, let's talk. Let's, let's actually start sharing experiences. Uh, you know, Timothy, this is how we met. I think you, you had read one of our articles or listened to one of our podcasts and, and you got in touch, Lynette. That's exactly how you got in touch with me initially as well. Um, so yeah, the more, the more the merrier come and join this conversation. Cause to my mind, it is that destigmatization that needs to occur or has the most resource dedicated to it as we pursue these other angles. Because for those to succeed, the stigma needs to be gone. Um, I am interested in some closing thoughts from you all. Um, A bit of a tough one, but if we could change one issue or, or, you know, what do we need to change most pressingly to see genuine change in the legal sector's relationship with mental health and mental well-being, what would that change be? Liz, a couple of thoughts from you on that one, and then I'll move to the others.
3: Thanks, Tom. Well, just listening to Timothy there talk about, um, there is a perception, really, you know, it's an important point that Timothy made, a perception of laziness. And I think, actually, what we should be saying is, I think this is an excuse for not addressing this issue um, around mental health and well-being i think one of the things that just occurred to me when you put that question to us is we talk a lot about business models um, going forward you know particularly in law firms and it does occur to me you know would would building this into how you know the whole ethos of of how a, a legal firm operates you know Clients are much more aware, surely, of a kind of mental health, making sure that the people that they instruct are a, sort of abiding. They're, you know, looking after the people that they have working for them and it becomes integral to what that firm is about. I mean, it's something, I mean, this is a different jurisdiction, but I was in um, Dubai last week and it's something that came up um, and more and more law firms there are thinking about, well, how can we make this, you know, our environment much more open to lots of things, you know, whether it's kind of supporting parents, whether it's looking at some of the struggles that you have as a newly qualified legal professional. And I think the more that people start to build that in, the more it becomes part and parcel of what your future business model looks like.
0: I think it's a really great point, Liz. I would love to see the Transaction closing party to be a group of stable, happy, uh, collegiate people toasting the successful completion of a deal rather than coming through the finishing line backwards and on fire, being almost a badge of honor when it comes to lawyers working on these high, you know, high stress billion dollar plus. Um, deals, why can't we have that as the sign of a successful closing is the fact that not everyone has bloodshot eyes, is drinking champagne at a mile a minute and says, thank God I'll get to finally see my children after two months. Like, sure that's not a badge of honour. That's a giant red warning sign shouting unsustainable, unsustainable. So I I couldn't agree more. I think there needs to be a fundamental reassessment of what we feel is the criteria we judge success on. I couldn't couldn't agree more. Uh, Lynette, some thoughts from you on what would you think is the most pressing change needed for the legal uh, sector to... Press the reset button on its relationship with mental health and well being.
1: Um, I thank you very much, Tom. And just um, for me, I think I would say you need to understand that, or rather, my uh, parting shot would be like, we are human. So please humanize people's experiences. We may want to come to the office in the morning. But And you put in so much pressure and the the workplace is so fast paced, forgetting that this person is dealing with so much back at home. And I keep saying this and I'll keep saying this, Tom, we also need to incorporate the aspect of having a trauma-informed approach at the workplace. Um, Let's have a look at the pandemic. Um, The pandemic, as Liz said, heightened a lot of things. Um, people were locked in their houses for months. There was barely any human interaction. Remember, I am a person, I'm a human being. I'm used to going to my office every single morning, maybe to get away from whatever it is that is happening in my household. Maybe where I stay, there's some sort of abuse, maybe from my partner, from somewhere or wherever I'm coming from. And my my place of solace was in the office. So when that is taken away from me, how do I deal with the situation head on? Or maybe I've gone through a very traumatic experience and you still expect me to come to the office and deliver at 100%. My, um, maybe my legal field, probably I'm working in the criminal law field and I'm used to seeing a lot of traumatizing things at my workplace. Perhaps I'm dealing with a murder trial. I get to see um, maybe I'm exposed to bodies or I'm exposed to very gruesome um events and i don't get the help that i need and i'm still required to come back to the office and put up a poker face and deal with all these things so my thing is my parting shot is sorry um kindly for the legal environment kindly take every person as a human being and know that they go through other experiences and you also need to take notes that there needs to be that traumatic um informed approach where people can actually feel free to not only discuss the issues that are facing them at the workplace, but they can also find a way of opening up to what they're dealing with in their personal lives so that they can have a wholesome experience in terms of getting help when it comes to issues around mental wellness. That would be my parting shot, Tom. Thank you. Thank
0: you, you Lynn. And for those that are interested, Lynn and I actually record an entire podcast on being trauma-informed. So do just search for that one to find out more. And Timothy, I'm very conscious of time, but a couple of closing lines from you. What does the legal uh, uh, sector need to do most pressingly?
2: Yes. um, So, I mean, to be honest, it just requires um, it's going to require funding, um, funding for those that are already doing the work and publications of legit organizations that are already doing the work so that they can be partnership, partnership and collaboration. You know, in as much as we want to keep talking we also want to direct people to where they can get help you know people want solution people want solution nobody wants problem so funding for those already doing the work would really go a long way and the um, a, a sort of publication of legit organizations already doing the work is something that can change um, that perspective in the legal space and yeah
0: Thank you, Timothy. And uh, thank you also to Liz and Lynn for joining me here today. And as always, a very big thank you to all of our listeners. If you are new to the Africa Legal podcast, be sure to peruse the entire back catalogue now approaching 70 episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast content. And as always, be sure to visit us at AfricaLegal.com for all the news, views and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal practitioner. So that's all from us today, and without further ado, this is Tom, Liz, Timothy, and Lynn, and we're signing off for the Africa Legal Podcast.